Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 21. Hear now the word of our God from Leviticus chapter 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, for they offer the and shall not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. These chapters here in particularly the last three chapters, have been building up on the, on the refrain that we're here, we've been hearing in chapters 19 and 20. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that theme that we heard in chapter 19, verse 2, returned again in chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at how God called Israel to be holy, to be holy to him. It's worth remembering that this is always about 
drawing near to God. So holiness is not about how to get people away from God, how to draw near to God. And now here in chapters 21, we'll turn particularly to the priests and see how there's, on the one hand, while the land, the promised land was holy, and yet the tabernacle and eventually the temple will be the holy place in the midst of the holy land. Even so, the people are holy, and yet there is a special holiness focused on the priests. Now, these two chapters focus on four things. We'll look at the first two tonight, uh, talking about the holy priests, and then next week we'll turn to the holy things. Uh, and each of the four sections in chapters 21 and 22, the first two for tonight, the next two for the next week, uh, starts off with the words, and the Lord said to Moses. So clearly distinguishing two things for tonight and then two things for next week. These first two parts are concerned with maintaining the, the physical holiness of the priests. Verses 1 to 15 focus on what I refer to as the uncommon social practices of the priests. Remember that the the word profane, to profane something is to take something holy and make it common. So when I say uncommon, well, that just means holy, because I, although I recognize. There's another direction you could go from uncommon. The other direction from uncommon would also be the downward spiral into perversity and death. But the uncommon social practices of the priests are related to their holy practices. Verses 1 to 6 insist that the priests as a whole shall not engage in the traditional mourning practices for the dead. A priest shall not make himself unclean for the dead. In other words, he may not touch their dead bodies. Now, I, I got there's, there's, there's a little background here. We're used to a world in which, uh, how often do you actually touch a dead body? It's actually pretty rare in our world that we actually touch dead bodies because we have a whole industry devoted to taking care of dead bodies. That industry is roughly 100 years old. It didn't exist. So if somebody dies, what do you do? You got to prepare the body. And this is, I mean, the, the funerary customs of, of the cultures of the world, I mean, there's there's usually a lot of people involved in preparing the body and there's a lot of people it's, it's there's friends there's family there's this is this it's a part of the the customs of pretty much every culture except the modern one i'm not going to call it the american one because americans used to do this too but it's it's the modern world that has taken death and turned it into this foreign concept to most of us but the priests are only to touch the dead bodies of the very closest of their relatives, mother, father, son, daughter, brother, or virgin sister. Now, the married sister is now part of a different family, so she's not included. Now, verse 4 adds that he shall not make himself unclean as a husband. And you might have wondered, what does that mean? Does that mean if his wife dies? Possibly. Because I mean, that, it's, it's, it's an open question. What about his wife? But the, uh, what other translations uh, and ancient, ancient versions suggest that this has to do with persons related by marriage. In other words, if your wife's brother dies, if your wife's parents die, so not making yourself unclean as a husband means her family is not included as what, those for whom the priest can touch their dead bodies. So it, this seems to assume that he may be 
unclean with respect to his wife, but not for any of her kin. That's the most likely way that this should be taken. But even in the rare cases where the priests were permitted to participate, they were not permitted to make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edge of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. We heard back in chapter 19 that these were practices that were forbidden to all Israelites, customs of the nations that God says, no, you shall not do this. But now he says, and specifically and especially, they are forbidden to priests. In other words, the priests are supposed to be exemplary Israelites in this matter. That in one sense, sure, all Israelites are not supposed to do this, but especially the priests. And verse 6 explains why. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. As those committed to the service of God, who, who are the ones who serve at the altar, and they are the ones who offer the Lord's food offerings, where God meets with his people and communes with them. So they must remain holy so that they can, in a sense, communicate holiness to the rest of Israel. I mean, think about what we've been seeing in Leviticus. What does it mean to be holy? To be set apart, yes, to be separate, but just as much that you should be mine, God says. God's holiness is not just his distinctness. It's also what impels him to draw near to us, which also is what makes him so distinct. How many beings do you know in the universe who draw near to rebels and aliens and strangers? There's not many. There's one in particular who is especially good at this. God draws us near to himself. Why? So that we might share in his holiness. What does it mean? You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy. God's purpose in our sanctification is that we might share his holiness. So it's, this is not about him being far off and distant. It's what impels him to draw near and create a way for us to draw near to him. And holiness requires separation from evil because we are separated to and for God. He, he made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Leviticus is teaching Israel to see these two paths, the way of life and the way of death making distinctions between the holy and the common, and within the common, between the clean and the unclean. And within the unclean, there's also depravity and abomination. Things that are moving in the direction of the unclean, and worse, are moving towards death. Things that are clean and moving towards the holy are moving towards life, which means that the priestly call is a call to life and blessing. When they're called to be holy, they are called to mediate life and blessing to the people of God. And we see this in the marriage practices for the priests in verses 7 to 9. The priest is not to marry a prostitute, a defiled woman, or a divorced woman. In other words, only a virgin or a widow is permissible for the priests in general. And again, we'll see the high priests in a minute, but for priests in general, it's partly because holiness is, includes the physical. And so defilement could come through the wife to the husband. The reason, again, given in verse 8, is that the priest is holy because he offers the bread of your God. This then warns the Israelites not to encourage a priest to marry their defiled daughter, lest they bring pollution upon the whole people. And verse 9 points out the implication of this for the children of the priests. 
A daughter who becomes a prostitute profanes her father and therefore must not only be punished with death, something that would happen to any Israelite prostitute, but after she is dead, her body must be burned with fire. In terms of, they, you don't find anybody being burned alive. That's not, the, when it says burned, that's after she's dead. She's, her body is burned with fire, which is a, a punishment reserved for particularly offenders of the holy, since it destroys their body in fire, which is a picture of what the soul deserves. The daughter of the priest is holy because she is her father's seed. And verses 10 to 15 then turn to the high priest. If the ordinary priests have a standard of holiness higher than ordinary Israelites, the high priest has the highest standard. He may not engage even in mourning for his father or mother. He may not engage in even the simplest of mourning rituals, not even the tearing of his clothes. Verse 12 says, he shall not go out of the sanctuary. Now, that doesn't mean that he has to stay in the sanctuary 24-7. What it means is that he could not render himself incapable of serving in the holy place. Because if he's unclean, then he must go out and stay out. And so if he's unclean, he can't go in. The point is, the high priest must always be on call, always be ready to enter the holy place because the high priest is the one, if you think back to Aaron at times, was called to intercede for Israel in moments of emergency. If the high priest can't do that, oops, we're in trouble. And so if he even touches the dead body of his father or mother, he would be rendered unclean and unable to enter the holy place. And that would profane the sanctuary of God. It would turn the holy place into a common place. How? Because the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. The high priest must remain holy at all times. Without a holy priest, there is no way that Israel can be holy. Now, you're probably seeing this already, but let me just say what Hebrews says. We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of of the people, since he, Jesus, did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The problem with the Levitical priesthood is that their holiness was extremely imperfect. Verses 13 to 15 then amplify the high priest's marriage practice. He must only marry a virgin from his people. While the rest of the priests could marry a widow, the high priest could only marry an Israelite virgin. Now, later Jewish tradition insisted that he could only marry within the priestly family. That's not anywhere in Leviticus. And you can think about why that might be. Because when Leviticus is written, Aaron and his sons, if they have to marry within the priestly family, you've got to marry your sisters, guys. No, God's already said, incest, no incest. So, but the concern was for the purity and holiness of Israel. If the high priest became defiled, how could Israel be pure? 
And the reason is given in verse 15, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. You see, the high priest is the most holy Israelite. He is the only one who may go into the most holy place. And so the woman he marries, when a man goes into his wife, must be a virgin. We see repeatedly in these central chapters of Leviticus how our sexual ethics connect with our worship. The prophets regularly describe idolatry as spiritual adultery. God created Adam and Eve for himself. And he gave them the act of marriage as a picture of the sort of union that he wants with us. And whenever we turn to other gods, that's a sort of spiritual adultery. When we love something else more than we love God, we are whoring after idols. Our culture has gone sexually bonkers. If if you're struggling with sexual temptation, let's talk. Talk with me, talk with one of the elders, talk with Haley, talk with someone you trust. Because the marriage relation between husband and wife is supposed to portray a picture of the intimacy between Christ and his bride, between God and the soul. Here's how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Think about that. If we were writing this today, we would probably say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for marriage. No, it's not what Paul says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord himself. The purity that God calls you to, the purity that Leviticus is talking about, is not just hold it until you get married. No. What does Paul say in the very next verse? And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul says that union with a prostitute distorts and corrupts. But the physical act is the act that is supposed to picture our union with God himself. That's why Paul says in the very next verse, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does that mean? The sexual act unites two bodies. And so to sin sexually is to sin against your own body in uniting yourself with somebody who is not God. Because again, it's not just, oh, it's not just, that's not your spouse. No, it's, your body is for God. And yes, God says, here's the right way of being married. But the body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Do you not know, Paul asks, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Much of what we've been seeing in Leviticus is, is the ugliness of sexual dysfunction. 
But here in chapter 21, with the marriage of the high priest, we get a picture of the beauty of Eden restored, or better, Eden redeemed. Because after the fall, you, you can't go back. There's no way back to Eden. The only way out is forward. There must be a redeemer. And the marriage of the high priest is part of that picture. And the marriage of the high priest continues pointing forward to Christ and his bride. But not only his marriage, also his physical characteristics. The second part of chapter 21 deals with physical defects in the priesthood. Only those who were physically whole could approach the holy place. If a descendant of Aaron had a defect, he could not minister before the Lord. Blind, lame, disfigured, deformed, crippled, hunchbacked, dwarfed. These are all outward defects, visibly uh, visible defects, and they're sufficient to remove a man from active service. Simply put, a priest must be a properly functioning specimen of the human race. Now, Gregory the Great, in his Book of Pastoral Rule, takes these qualities of the Levitical priest and applies them spiritually to the pastor. Many have accused him of, of an overly allegorical reading, but what I find interesting is that when you read Gregory's treatment of Leviticus 21 and put it side by side with, with 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you're like, huh. Gregory is seeing a connection between the outward picture in Leviticus and the inward picture that Paul uses. Undoubtedly, Moses intended these qualities quite literally, but even within the Old Testament, these physical qualities reflect spiritual realities. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. Paul will use the same sort of language when he says that the bishop or the elder must be above reproach. And then he goes on to describe several qualities, just like Moses described various qualities of what it meant to be blemished. A man blind or lame. Gregory says a man is blind if he is ignorant of heavenly contemplation. When he perceives the coming light, he does not value it, and as a result does not know how to improve his conduct. Likewise, the lame is one who sees the way he should go, but having unstable habits, he does not walk where he would. If a man is spiritually blind, then he won't see the way to go. If he's spiritually lame, then he will not be able to lead others in that way. Or one who has a mutilated face. Gregory's translation said, a a small nose. The nose is the, the organ of discernment. If you can't tell the difference between sweetness and foul stench, then you will not guide others very well. Think of Gandalf and Moria, who makes his decision based on the smell of each of the three paths. A good guide will follow his nose. Gregory the Great said the same thing 1,500 years ago. Now, my my favorite image of all of these has to be the hunchback. Uh, And Gregory points out that the hunchback is always looking down. He does not lift his eyes to heavenly things. Now, there's actually a really neat connection between the the, the way the hunchback is used in Scripture, which connects with what Paul does. Listen to how this works. Psalm 68 is the other passage in the Old Testament that uses this term. Psalm 60, actually, if you turn over to Psalm 68, you'll get to see this. Psalm 68 is talking about how we enter the presence of God. What does a priest do? 
He leads us in entering the presence of God, the very heart and soul of what Leviticus is all about. A hunchbacked priest cannot enter the presence of God. In Psalm 68, you see in verses 7 through 10 how God has led his people forth in the Exodus. You have this reference to God as the one of Sinai who led his people to the promised land and gave them the, the nations. There's all sorts of allusions to the history of Israel, but look particularly at verses 15 to 18. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked, literally, O hunchbacked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O hunchbacked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The mountain of Bashan is hunchbacked. The same characteristic, forbidden of priests. What's the problem with being hunchbacked? Mount Bashan is not looking upwards. It's a lot taller. It's a lot more majestic. It's a much greater mount. But Mount Bashan, and actually when you look at the Golan Heights, and it's, you can see why they call it a hunchback mountain. But it's hunchbacked. It's not looking up. They're, this was part of the territory that God gave Manasseh on the east bank of, of the Jordan, uh, east of Galilee. So this is Og, king of Bashan, had been conquered by Moses, and then Manasseh uh, dwelt there. But it's, it's perhaps not surprising that the mountains of Bashan would be jealous that God chose Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Mount Zion, that piddling little podunk mountain that's not, not, not worth commenting on. If you want a good mountain in Israel, go to Mount Bashan. <laughs> We're the, this is where things are at. Mount Bashan is a defective mountain, warped by jealousy and pride, hunchbacked, not looking to heaven but looking at earth. And and watch God's response. Verse 17. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Wait, Sinai is now in the sanctuary? Yeah. Same thing we heard at the end of Exodus 40. When the glory of the Lord left Mount Sinai and came and filled the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies was filled with the glory of the Lord, which came from where? Sinai. Because the tabernacle is Mount Sinai tipped over on its side. The tabernacle is where God comes and dwells with his people. He's not just going to stay at Sinai. The Lord leaves Sinai. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. And when David prepares to build the temple and Solomon puts the temple together, and and then what happens after Solomon dedicates the temple? The glory of the Lord fills the holy place. And now Sinai is in the sanctuary again because God himself dwells with his people. And then verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Notice what happens. When God ascends on high, then even rebellious hunchbacked Mount Bashan will bring gifts to God. Paul paraphrases this in Ephesians 4 when he says that when Christ ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Paul says that when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, that was good. He received gifts from men then. But when Christ ascended to the heavenly temple, that's even better. Because he didn't just receive gifts from men, he gave gifts to men. And what are the gifts that Christ gives? And he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Among the gifts that Christ gives to his church are those officers whom he gives to his church. 
In other words, when talking about church officers as gifts to the church, Paul quotes the psalm that just spoke of the jealousy of the hunchback mountain. And Psalm 68 goes on to talk about the nations singing praise to God. Psalm 68 prefigures the redemption of the Gentiles, the purpose of what God is doing with with this physically whole specimen of a priest. The purpose of this is to get to the point when the priest, who is not just perfectly a physical specimen, but is our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is God and man in one person, when he becomes the high priest, when he enters the heavenly holy of holies, then it's not just the nations giving gifts, but now Jesus gives the gifts to the nations so that even jealous old hunchback Mount Bashan will be able to come to God. Because all of this is to say that these physical defects in Leviticus 21 are designed to show that the one who offers the bread of God is to be above reproach, one who is blameless. The New Testament doesn't use physical characteristics, but as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, he says the overseer must be above reproach. The same the root, root word has to do with being blameless, without blemish. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Here, the characteristics are not so much physical, but moral and spiritual. That the basic principle is that the overseer, the bishop, is to be an exemplary Christian. And our passage closes by giving the reason that no man of the offspring of Aaron shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings... He may, now it says in verse 22, he may eat the bread of, of his God, both the most holy and of the, the holy things. So notice, the defect does not remove him from the priestly family. It is not a spiritual disqualification. Rather, it, appro- it prevents him from approaching the altar because nothing impure or deformed belongs in the presence of God. Since the most holy food was to be eaten in the courtyard, it makes it clear that even the hunchback priest could be involved in much of the priestly service. The only things he can't do is serve at the altar or go into the tent. That's it. Everything else. There's lots he can do, and he's still, he's still a, a functioning member of the priesthood, just not on entering, offering the Lord's food offerings. Israel was to be holy, and so their priests must be holy. Because one who is impure, who offers the sacrifices of God, would profane the sanctuary of God. If he, and to, it would render the, the sanctuary common. Now, it's worth noting that Jeremiah, the prophet, was of a priestly family, but we never see him functioning as a priest. Some have wondered, hmm, did he have one of these defects? So, who knows? But the point is, of all these social and physical characteristics, Emphasize the need for a high priest who will be a perfect representative of the human race. And that's why Hebrew says it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
Jesus is the Holy One, the High Priest who is Himself holy and pure. The Levitical priesthood could never get us there. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the one who has done what the law required. and then But he did far more because he has dealt with our sin. He has made the once for all offering. The, the law just kept giving off uh, every day, every month, every week, every year. But Jesus offered himself once for all that he might bring us to God once for all because there's now a Redeemer who has delivered us from sin, death, and the devil forever. Oh, Heavenly Father, have mercy on us, we pray, because we too often are forgetful of your ways and we too often wander in our own paths. Lord, have mercy on us and Help us as we walk before you, that we might hear your voice and respond with faith, hope, and love, trusting your promises and believing that you will do what you have said. And Lord, in, in all the situations of life, have mercy. Have mercy, Lord, on, on those who are sexually tempted. Have mercy and grant your grace that they might, that they might flee to you. For Lord, you have told us that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for you. Help us to believe you and to trust you, and to walk humbly before you. Lord, help us in, in our seeking after you, that we might draw near to you through your great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, that in our, in our daily walk, as we, as we live in our, in our homes, as we walk in our, in our workplaces, as we engage in our schools and in our neighborhoods, help us to humble ourselves before you and trust your promises and live faithfully, and humbly before you. And Lord, have mercy on those who are suffering and afflicted. Be with those who who are near to death and grant to them your nearness, your presence, that as they draw near to that hour that you would that you would draw near to them and that you would be their rock and their fortress. Help help us all, Lord, because we do not know the hour of our death. So help us all to live in such a way that we might never be afraid to die because we know that in all that we are and all that we have, in body and soul and life and in death, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.